All in favor of being done with the snow, raise your hands. <laughs> Doesn't matter. What say do we have in that? Very little. We'll work with it. Could be worse, right? There were two moose hunters in northern Canada who shot an unusually uh, huge moose. The two hunters had a problem, however. They couldn't pack this uh, trophy animal out of the woods. So using their cell phone, they called in a tiny seaplane. When they tried to talk the pilot into ferrying out this huge moose, the pilot responded dubiously, I don't know if I can take off with that much weight. Oh, we've done this before, the two, two moose hunters reassured him. Don't worry, you can trust us. So they strapped the moose in, in and uh, draping it across both pontoons. But again, the pilot pleaded, I cannot take the moose back with us. There's just too much weight. Relax, the hunters persisted. We've done this before. Trust us. But look how far we're sinking below the waterline, the pilot objected. I'm the pilot. I know how much it takes to, to lift off. We've done this before, the two hunters contended. Trust us. Well, very reluctantly, the pilot agreed. He gunned the engine, took off down his runway of water, and immediately crashed into the treetops at the end of the lake. They all survived the crash, but debris flew everywhere, and the moose carcass lodged in the branches of a tall pine tree. Down the shoreline, one dazed hunter called out the other, Hey, George, how did we do? Well, George replied, we made it about 50 feet farther than last year. About 50 feet farther than last year. Hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal. Or as English poet Alexander Pope put it, it is human nature always to find fresh cause for optimism. But staying optimistic in the times in which we live today is getting more and more challenging even for the, the half full kind of person. There's a longing in our heart, however, for a better future, a different outcome. And, and down through history, human leaders have promised better days ahead. Human leaders plead with us, trust us, trust us. In 1916, for example, Woodrow Wilson promised to keep the United States out of World War I, and one year later, we were fighting in World War I. Herbert Hoover promised to eradicate poverty. That was in 1928. You know what happened in 1929, the Great Depression. You have Franklin Roosevelt pledged in 1940 to keep the United States out of World War II. Lyndon Johnson's promise to win the war on poverty. And Richard Nixon's pledge to keep the United States out of the Vietnam War. Most of us remember George Bush's promise, no new taxes, read my lips, right? I mean, I could go on. The point is this. Human leaders can and will continue to make all kinds of promises, but as we look at history, we would every, have every right to be a bit skeptical. We start to throw up our hands and say, can you trust anything they say? But in our heart of hearts, we want to believe them. Oh, how much we want for a better future promised to us and actually fulfilled. 
Well, that brings us to the book of Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, I encourage you to join with me in your Bibles, on your phone, whatever you use, uh, to Isaiah chapter 11 as we continue in our sermon series from the book of Isaiah and the theme of why are we here? What's our purpose? Why do we exist? And as I've already mentioned right out of the gates of the study, I've chosen a number of passages that we're going to be looking at in Isaiah, but we're not going to be looking at every chapter, every verse. You've already seen that. But I hope as we go through this that, that you get a good sample of Isaiah's richness, of, it, of its themes. And one of the themes in, in the book of Isaiah is this issue of trust. Trust. Will our trust be in God or will our trust be in people? That's certainly been the flow of thought since chapter 7. And as we come to chapter 11 this morning, it's all part of a bigger section going all the way back to chapter 7. Now, if you haven't been with us along the way, let me set the scene for you, and we could all really benefit from, from a brief review. The southern kingdom, made up of two tribes of Israel, two of the twelve, southern kingdom, uh, it's referred to often as, as Judah, sometimes referred to the house of David. Well, these two uh, tribes, the southern kingdom, Judah, the house of David, were being bullied by the ten northern tribes of Israel who had joined this uh, coalition with Syria, not to be confused with Assyria. And so the people of Judah, those two tribes in southern kingdom, because of what's going on in the north, and they're coming down and threatening them, they were shaken in fear, as was their fearless leader Ahaz. And God's message to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah was, trust God with the outcome. Don't panic, don't react, don't waver in your faith. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you do not stand at all. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 9. But people looked rather big to Ahaz, and his God looked rather small. And his fear prompted a mistake, a huge mistake. For Ahaz turned to the superpower Assyria for help rather than turning to God for help. And Isaiah's message to Ahaz was, don't fear people, fear God instead. Ahaz didn't listen. And just as God predicted what happened, happened. Ahaz's experience reminds us that the thing we fear often doesn't come about. And the superpower of Syria came along and they did wipe out those enemies. They, they wiped out the northern coalition. And so, just, just then, as, as Ahaz was going, kind of, oh, good, we're all set, he had another problem on his hands. His fear prompted mistake. His colossal failure of trusting in man rather than God would be costly. Because the one he called on for help, the Assyrians, that just wiped out his enemies, were now going to turn their fury against Judah. Now what? What would this mean for the people of God? What will come of this failure? Well, that brings us to our focus of attention this morning. As we come to chapter 11, we're going to pick up some verses, though, in chapter 10. And my first heading this morning is deliverance will come. And deliverance is God's gracious gift. Whenever there's deliverance, it is God's gracious gift. Now, Isaiah chapter 11 sets up for us this great contrast 
between God's deliverer and the king of Assyria. And both the king of Assyria and the one Isaiah will speak about in chapter 11 depict greatness. But the two rulers are on entirely two different paths to greatness. Their paths to greatness were completely opposite to the extreme. If you want to be great, if you want to be great, our culture says, you must promote yourself. You must flex your muscles of of self-will and rights. The way to greatness in the world's opinion belongs to the powerful, the strong, the confident, those who can assert themselves. And the king of Assyria couldn't agree more. And so in chapter 10 now, the king of Assyria boasted, look back with me, verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 10. These are the, this is the king's words here. By the strength of my hand, I have done this. By my wisdom, because I have understanding. What an ego. King of Assyria did a lot of huffing and puffing. But there's one fact he ignored. He was only such a big shot because God allowed him to be and and used him to carry out his plan. We see that if you go back to verse 5 of Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, God says, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. Verse 15, Isaiah asked, Does the axe raise itself above him who swings it, or the saw boast against him who uses it? What is this saying? It's saying that all this huffing and puffing of the king of Assyria was actually all part of God's plan. Assyria was a tool in the hand of God to bring discipline upon the people of God. You see, before the consuming reality of the sovereign God, before the consuming reality of the sovereign God, all human efforts are subject to God's purposes, all. Even those who are self-serving, those who are full of themselves, figure nothing can stand in their way. Listen, they are servants to God's purposes. I mean, you go, wow. I mean, we need to kind of chew on that a little bit as we get all worked up, as we see different things going on around us. Well, you want to exalt yourself you want to pave your own way to greatness, Assyrian style? Well, consider these words, verse 19, now still in chapter 10. He says, the remnant of the trees, this is the same one who's boasting all, look what happens to him. The remnant of the trees of his forest, meaning the Assyrian army, what's left of the army is what? Will be so few that a child can write them down. That's God's taking care of this. You see, God will cut down the army of Assyria to a comically skimpy number A number that a child could count on his fingers. That's what it's saying. What a warning to those who boast of their greatness. God does the reducing. He can bring those individuals down, and he does. But it's also a word of hope and encouragement to the church. There's no need to despair under the forces that stand against us. They're all subject to God's purposes. You see, Isaiah chapter 10, and you can read it for yourself later on this week, but Isaiah chapter 10 tells us so much about God. The king of Assyria thinks it's all about him, but it's all about God. 
It says in Isaiah chapter 10 that God is the mighty God, that he is the Lord of hosts, that he's the light of Israel, that he is the majestic one, that, he, that he's not a God to be messed with. And the daunting reality for the people of God is they are messing with God. They ignored their God, and they were getting what they deserve, but not in full. Because what they deserved as a people who denied their God, was total annihilation. And their failure, I want us to see this morning, the triumph of God's grace. The triumph of God's grace. And although the people's lack of trust in God will have meant uh, nearly total destruction at the hand of Assyria, that destruction is not God's final word. God and His grace is moving all the parts then and now, God in His grace is moving all the parts to show off His grace, to show off His mighty power, and that His plan that, that no one is capable of thwarting. God is moving all history to save His people. He's doing that. And, and Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, Christ said, I will build my church. That's not a question. That is a statement with an exclamation point. No one on earth, no one in hell will ultimately succeed in shooting the church down. When Francis Scott Key wrote the national anthem, at the time he was a prisoner on board a British ship during the War of 1812. The enemy ship fired on Fort McHenry all night long. That's known as the birthplace of the national anthem. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof, proof through the night that our flag was still there. The fort's garrison stood firm during a severe naval bombardment by the British forces. Church, that is the position we are in now. Not nationally, but spiritually. That Christ triumphant commitment is to build his church. He's fully committed. He is all in on that. It's a sure thing, no matter what forces stand against it, we can stand on this. We can take heart. God's grace is still at work around us. He is moving all the parts. He's moving all the parts to accomplish his purpose. Now, chapter 10 ends with these words, now, I want you to follow along with me. Chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Remember, there are no chapter breaks in the original scriptures. They, are, they were added later for our benefit. And so chapter 10 flows seamlessly into chapter 11, verse 1. Okay, so I'm going to read it that way. 33, 34, chapter 10 flows right into chapter 11, verse 1. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. Chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now you need a picture here. A large tree with a very thick trunk. A lumberjack comes along and he chops and saws at that trunk until it thunders uh, to the ground. 
He then drags away the branches. He hauls away the lumber until all that's left there is one lowly stump. It looks dead, but something new appears. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Hope. And as we read those words in chapter 11, we mustn't forget what was going on in chapter 10. End of chapter 10 ends with God swinging his axe and the whole evil system falls. Nothing left but bare stump for all to see. Every injustice, every broken promise, everything that threatens you, God will go down to the root of it and chop it down. Now see the contrast. Proud trees chop down. Chapter 10. Humble servant will come from a seemingly dead stump, chapter 11. And seemingly a dead stump because no one has been on David's throne for so many years. It appeared dead. The stump is Jesse. The roots refer to the remnant. And a branch refers to Jesus. Deliverance will come to the people of Isaiah, the people of Judah. Deliverance will come. It's, whenever deliverance comes, it's God's gracious gift. It's God's gracious gift. And that gracious gift, second heading this morning, that gracious gift comes wrapped in a person. That gracious gift comes wrapped in a person. As we saw last week from chapter 9, if you were with us, the Messiah uh, to be born that was hinted at in chapters 7 and 8 is then fleshed out in greater detail in chapter 9 and continues now in chapter 11. We might say that chapter 9 emphasized Jesus' divinity and chapter 11 puts its emphasis on on his humanity. But This one Isaiah speaks about And chapter 11, undoubtedly, is the baby born in obscurity 700 years later. Now, notice this. Isaiah writes this as if there's no time separating what he described in chapter 10 with what he sees here in chapter 11. Yet there are 700 years between Assyria being chopped down and the arrival of the Messiah. In theological circles, we call this prophetic perspective. Prophetic perspective. That prophets could look down at the future the way we may look at a mountain range with distant mountains and then nearer mountains in one mountain range, all of them looking like one mountain. For example, the white mountain range from a distance looks like one mountain, Mount Washington. But if you started hiking or, or driving, you discover that it's more than one mountain. It's rather several mountains of higher ridges with valleys in between. And so where Isaiah stood, God allowed him to see Mount Washington of the future with no idea how distant it was. And only as these events roll out, played out in history, do we then realize there are other ridges and valleys and other mountains and so on that separate them. And the prophet spoke this way all the time, all the time, of something in the present, and then the ne- very next minute, they spoke of an event in the distant future with no indication of how much time is in between. They spoke of that this is happening on Sunday, and then the very next verse, this is happening on Monday. But there's m- many years in between those two. 
That's what's going on. That's going on here. Chapters 10 to 11. It's going on in what we see in chapter 11. We have descriptions of Jesus. We pay close attention here of his first coming and descriptions of Jesus and his second coming with no indication that there's a time lapse in between. Prophetic perspective. Hang on to that. Maybe that was more information than you wanted to know, but we need to know this because it would really get confusing. All right, and speaking of his first coming, notice what will characterize his ministry. Look at verse 2, Isaiah chapter 11. Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he would delight in the fear of the Lord. Now this future king from the dynasty of David will manifest the power of the Holy Spirit. He will not be like most of the kings before him who had little of God in their leadership. Now, now church, this is a word to all of us. This is a word to all of us. What qualities of a leader are attractive to you? What kind of leaders are you seeking to emulate? Because sadly, often anyway, the leaders we hold up are those with great skills and competence and can lead with charisma and persuasiveness. I mean, they're just people who get things done. Now, that's not to say those qualities aren't important. That's not what I'm saying at all. But true spiritual leadership must manifest a capacity that goes beyond ordinary and merely human. Let me say that again. True spiritual leadership must manifest a capacity that goes beyond ordinary and merely human. And haven't we seen, haven't we seen the great harm that has come to the universal church because people were chosen to lead because of natural ability only with little of God in it. And we've held them up. And then they fall. I'm saying that's the only reason. Hear me out. And that was the indictment that was the indictment on Israel's kings. They fell to pride. Uh, they, they, they became pompous. They led others astray. It is no small thing here. No small thing that the one spoken of here had more than royal lineage. He had the full and complete anointment of the Holy Spirit. That's no small thing. And with no hint of time lapse, Isaiah seems to move a description of Jesus at his second coming. Verse 3, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. This perfect leader won't be fooled by anyone. I mean, we can easily be fooled by the appearances of others. We can jump to conclusions that may or may not be accurate, right? A, A human judge A human judge can only base his decision on appearances, what he sees, what he hears as testimony. A jury must be satisfied that the person is guilty beyond reasonable doubt. I mean, that's the best they can do. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. The judgments of Jesus will always be right. Always. Because absolute justice requires absolute knowledge, and Jesus has that. Only Jesus is fully qualified to rule the world in this way, for he will not be impressed by the outward appearances that we are often impressed with. 
For he is clothed, it says in verse 5, with righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist. Righteousness refers to the capacity for doing right in all circumstances. Faithfulness speaks to him being dependable all the time. And when you combine those two words, the thought is of an integrity which results in complete dependability. We can trust him to always make the right call, even if we can't understand it at the time. And that isn't, that isn't what we see in our fallen world today. The world is all out of whack. It's all mixed up. Right is wrong, wrong is right. And one of, great, one of life's greatest irritations is injustice. It isn't fair what some people get away with. The unfairness and injustice of life is one of the hardest things to swallow. Suffering makes us sad, but injustice makes us mad. A few things are more infuriating than seeing evildoers go free while honest, upright, and perhaps godly people suffer. See, the world resembles a poorly officiated game. <laughs> now, as a basketball coach, you probably saw this one coming. I've witnessed some poorly officiated games. One game towards the end of our season, and I'll say right up front, this isn't why we lost. But one, of the game, one, one game towards the end of our season, we were matched up against a much more physical team. Our players were being held, they were being slapped, and I would say they were being mugged. The officials were oblivious to it all, and the game almost got out of hand. I had to restrain myself from yelling at the inept officials. I mean, coaching really works on my sanctification, folks. It really does. I just wanted them to notice the injustices, intervene like they're supposed to, make a few calls, blow the whistle. Instead, they didn't do their jobs, and the game wasn't played fairly. That is how some people feel about God and the way God officiates the world. We all know there are big problems. There's, there's world hunger, and there's, there's global economic crisis, there's mistreatment of the poor, there's political oppression, there's worldwide sex, sex trafficking. Then on the more personal problem, there's a friend's addiction, there's a marital crisis, there's a church split, there's friends who despise each other, and at times we feel like crying out, God, why don't you intervene? Why don't you make a few calls here and keep the game fair? Why does God seem to let the bullies in life win? Infuriating. See, we all long for fairness and equity. And when Jesus, who has a passion for justice, when he comes again, and we may have to wait for then to see some of these things happen, but when he comes again, he will make right all the massive wrongs we have been forced to accept. That means, though, on a personal level, we can trust him with that injustice, that mistreatment done to us. You see, 
Human leaders, they may voice their ideals, they may make all kinds of promises, but we have a reason with them to be cautious and skeptical, and sometimes that translates into our trust with God and with Jesus, but Jesus deserves our full trust. We can never be too trusting of Jesus, never. Don't lose sight of the triumph. The rule of Christ will transform the world. And Isaiah doesn't concern himself with when this will happen, for his focus is on who will bring it about, and that should be good enough for us. Deliverance is God's gracious gift. That gracious gift comes wrapped in a person. Thirdly, that person will establish the only answer to all our sorrows and justices and problems. That person will establish the only answer to all our sorrows to all the injustices in the world. We now have a picture of a time when the world won't just be a little bit better, but a picture of something radically new. Verse 6. These words show up on Christmas cards. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. And if I could just wrap it up in one sentence, I'd say all hurting forces that touch children will be gone. It says more than that, at least says that. Verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Every inch of the world will be the holy mountain of God. It goes on, and that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. And then verse 11 speaks of, in that day the Lord will reach out his hand, which is language of the Exodus. He will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. Why? God is gracious. As to when all this happens, to what specifically this is pointing, could take up the rest of my time this morning, then some of the many varying opinions. But suffice it to say, some take these words here in verses 6 through 11 uh, to mean the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth in which this literally will take place. That's where I tend to lead, land. Others view this as a more metaphorical than literal, and that describes the peace safety, and, and security that we'll experience in the afterlife and in heaven, possibly. Some spiritualize these words. I'm less inclined to go with this. Some spiritualize these words that they represent various spiritual conditions within human beings. All right. You can do research yourself. You can, that's your home. Or you can do that if you want. That's up to you. We may, agree, we may not agree on how many mountain ridges there are to the top of Mount Washington. But we can agree that when the time of redemption is over, there will be no death, no sin, no disease, no pain, no sorrow, no injustice. And the lion will get along with the lamb, and we will all get along with each other. <laughs> imagine that. And Jesus will be king. That's why we can imagine that. There is a glorious future that waits the people of God. And the triumph of Jesus will not be this rise of some new religion. 
It will not be the establishment of the right people and the right places of authority. The triumph of Jesus will be the awakening of everything beautiful. The triumph of Jesus will be over all violence, everything that that sickens us today, the maddening injustices. The triumph of Jesus is the answer to, to poverty and hunger and illiteracy and heartaches and all the sorrows we have created in this fallen world. See, what God has in store for us, church, will be more and better than we can ever imagine. He is much more creative than simply placing us in the clouds to play harps and sing in some massive choir forever and ever. Where do we ever get that notion from? Oh, come to heaven. Come to be saved so you can go to heaven where you can play the harps forever and ever. Sign me up. God is much more creative than that. It's far better than we can imagine. All right, I need to get to two points of application here from all of this. Two points. This is what I want. These are your takeaways this morning. First of all, the mighty grace of God is greater than our failures. The mighty grace of God is greater than our failures. Israel failed God. The people of God turned away from him to lesser pleasures. They rebelled against God, and they cannot save themselves from all the consequences of those decisions and failures. But by God's grace, by God's grace, he will preserve a remnant to enjoy all that he has in store for them. God does that because of his grace. Did they deserve that? No. Did they receive it? Yes. And it extends to us. This, is, this triumph of grace is greater than our failures. There's one, only one, who can save us from ourselves. God's grace is greater than our failures. Do you see, do you, do you see God like that? It makes all the difference in the world, even as you live out this week. That you don't have to live in that place of rehashing your failures. Don't obsess on them. Don't obsess on them. C.S. Lewis, the screw tape letters, he describes one of Satan's favorite tactics to demoralize and discourage Christians. He says this, get Christians to become preoccupied with their failures. From then on, the battle is won. Yep. It is. No, church. Let God's grace pour over your failures this morning, whatever those are. They're bigger than, they're greater than those failures all combined. All right, second point of application is the mighty grace of God purifies us for our good. The mighty grace of God purifies us for our good. That's what he's doing with the people. He's purifying them. And so if God is showing you something right now that you are leaning on for security, you're leaning on for significance, chalk that up to his grace that he's showing you. When he strips from your hands some misplaced trust that has only brought you heartache after heartache and pain and more pain and keeps dragging you down, that is God's grace at work in your life. When he reveals to you your, your, some false saviors, your, your inadequate props that you've been leaning on that have only led to disappointment and disillusionment and emptiness, 
That is God's grace at work in your life. He's showing up in your life, and he's going, take this, not that. This is good for you. That is not. He doesn't want us to settle for all that stuff. So I ask you, how is God's grace showing you that what you're engaging in right now is harmful? Is God doing a work right now in purifying you? That's only for your good. Embrace it. Walk in it. Let it lead you to do an about face so he can take you to a deeper place with him. May God's grace this morning speak into your failures. May, may, may it remind you of his work of purifying you for your good. And remember this. As we sang about his goodness chases after us, remember this. He will go to great lengths to preserve his children and take them to his glorious kingdom despite what we deserve. He will. It's a good thing it's God's grace, not up to me. He will go to great lengths, as he does here to the people. He will go to great lengths to preserve his children and take them to his glorious kingdom despite what we deserve. Let that truth just sink deeply in us so that it transforms our desires, it transforms our longings, that that we go hard after that which is eternal rather than settle for all this other stuff. C.S. Lewis, well-known words, preachers love quoting this thing from C.S. Lewis. I know I've done it at least once. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us, it would, seem, uh, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He goes on, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he concludes by saying, we are far too easily pleased. Yes, we are. May God stir in us such a longing that we stop settling for the mud pies of this slum and set our sights on what is ahead. That longing in our heart for a better future does not rest in some campaign promise, but in the one we can never trust to much. You see, the mighty work of His grace that saved you will get you home. It will. I heard about a man whose birthday fell a few days before Christmas. Some of you might know what this is like. And each year, his brother gave him just one present to cover both birthday and Christmas, and he always saved that one combined present for Christmas, so he got nothing on his birthday. One year, though, in unusual fashion, his brother gave him a present for his birthday as well. With great excitement, he unwrapped the wrapping paper to find a box, and he opened the box, and inside he found two things. The first was a single shoe for a left foot. The second thing was simply a card that said, happy birthday, guess what you're getting for Christmas, right? All right, stay with me. Church. We hold one shoe that guarantees that another one is coming. Guarantees. You hold in your hand the precious gift of salvation in Jesus Christ that is all about His grace. So you know that same grace will get you home. 
He'll get you home. Your future glory is absolutely certain. Keep that in view as you live out this week and go hard after him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your words this morning that though we may see this as something written many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, we know, God, that it's something very applicable to us today. You call us, God, to build our lives not on everything else, not on these things that are shaky and worldly and temporal, but to build our lives on Jesus Christ, who has begun a work, work in us, and he will, in fact, bring it to completion. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.